names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Hi, this is Gumby Montgomery, and I'm here today with Teresa. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. And well, I just want to take this another direction real quick. Um, <laughs> um, thank you for your work in the world. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Gumby. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my best uh, at the moment Derek Jensen impression. Um, we've been listening to his podcast, Resistance Radio, um, and we really like it. I recommend it. Like, if uh, you're listening to this, you probably um, have some ideas or thoughts that are kind of in this direction, you're going to love Derek Jensen's interviews with a lot of interesting and informative people. So, um, but we like making fun of him because his intro is, uh, really funny and I love how much he interrupts himself. Like, <laughs> wait, wait. And, and before I go on, let me just tell you how you're going to answer this question. So I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer it one to two ways. I'm going to tell you how to answer it. <laughs> but wait, but, for, but first, before I do that, <laughs> but if we love you, Derek Jensen, yes, we have gained so much from Derek <laughs> Jensen. And I want to invite any listener. Apparently like you can get on our website and there's like a way to send us, send us an audio recording. It's not our website. It's on the anchor podcast for our podcast. Did there used to be something where you could record a message and so if you want to make fun of me please do that and if you want to make fun of Gumby please do that yes we if you can like mock us or satire us we would love that we would find that so freaking hilarious and we will try really hard to play that um but anyway moving along um welcome to escaping society this is uh episode 50 death cult um my name is Gumby and we are, um, well, let me take this in another direction. Um, we are now in the occupied lands of the Eno and the Carolina Parakeet, what the uh, colonizers call um, Bahama. Mm-hmm. So, Teresa, um, well, let me, <laughs> now I'm actually doing it. <laughs> let me take it in another direction. So Before I give you a chance to talk, let me take this in a different direction. Yeah, so we want to talk about death. Um, death is such a constant part of our lives, so we thought this would be a really interesting thing to explore. Um, and it's this ever-present thing. We're surrounded by it. Like, there's nothing that's alive that doesn't die. Like, death and life are the yin and yang of everything we experience. Um, they make, it makes life possible. So we just wanted to start some conversations about this, especially at this time with the quarantine and the pandemic, you know, we're hearing like death tolls and everything. Um, so the death of your pen. Yeah. I just killed part of my pen. <laughs> so entropy right there. Um, so Teresa, when we bring up the topic of death. What are some of your first thoughts? You know, when I, when I talk about death, you know, some people have different reactions. Some people think about somebody they're worried about, that they're fearing will die soon. Some people are worried about their own death. Some people have a really, like, accepting reaction. What are some first impressions and first thoughts that cross your mind when I say, let's talk about death? Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Um, I am... 
afraid <laughs> at many times. It could be something as simple as trying to cross a stream over a log. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, uh, in a, a little bit, I'll tell you a story about um, how I almost killed Gumby and myself. Um, but just recently, I had a, a brush with death, and it was actually kind of interesting. Um, usually, Gumby and I walk down to the stream together, and we bathe and wash any dishes, etc., wash our clothes. But uh, for a couple of days, like I was doing gardening, and I just I didn't have a chance to go down to the to the stream when he did. I wanted to wait till I got all my dirty stuff done. And so I was walking by myself through the woods. It had just been a really torrential downpour day, that maybe like the day before. And there was still a lot of wind in the treetops. So when I went into the woods, I like we do this little thing where we ask the poison ivy for permission to pass and um, just humbly, you know, ask if we could pass without getting any of the oils on us. And so I did that and I was kind of dallying, looking at the poison ivy, and I heard this commotion further back in the woods, and I actually saw this tree fall. I didn't really know what tree it was until I got down to our regular bathing spot. And had I not taken the moments I did with the poison ivy, I am pretty sure I would have been flattened and just gone. I would have been dead. A huge beech tree, bigger around than I can even stretch my arms to show on the podcast, um, <laughs> fell and took took out a number of trees with it. And since then, some other trees have come down. It, it completely changed the landscape of where we go each day and continues to change as each um, storm passes. So getting back to, you know, death, um, for a while, it was getting used to the changes as a living being, uh, recognizing that you know, the spot that we knew has now changed. And this giant that we hadn't really even noticed before was now very much a prominent part of our day. And after about a week, uh, I thought it would be nice to have like a celebration of the tree's life and not just that tree, but other trees as well. And just the place that we go to. Yeah. It took down like three other trees. Yeah. Um, and I really felt like that was I mean, like I said, a brush with death and and then transitioning into a celebration of life. I feel like a lot of what death is, like our response to death is really the people that are so like left behind, so to speak. Um, so the fear, like I'm not going to be able to communicate in the same way with that being that has now moved into its next phase. Um I don't know if I had anything else to say at the moment. Well, I remember you suggested that we have some kind of ceremony, which I really appreciated that uh, you had that suggestion. And so Teresa kind of took the lead on this, like when we did it and uh, kind of the basic framework of it. But it was really nice. I liked the way you framed it of like, let's celebrate this tree's life. Like, let's move past the morning, you know, that this tree and, and trees, of course, hold their lives differently than we do. So just because it fell... We don't know for sure that it's dead. You know, there's green leaves on this tree. It could recover in one of those weird ways trees have the ability to do sometimes. Yeah. Um, But as we're mourning this tree, you know, we could kind of, 
And who knows where that line is between anthropomorphizing. We don't actually know how the tree feels, but I feel like the most important thing we can do is make the effort. Um, I'm moving into just general animism here, not death in particular, but I feel like animism actually is about life and death. Mm-hmm. But the making the effort to try to put yourself in another's place and what we felt about this tree was kind of a sense of shock. You know, this tree was a big beach, maybe there for, I don't know how quickly beaches age, but let's just say 200 years. And Older you, than us for damn sure. You said um, at one point, I like you said, I would not have pegged that as a widow maker. Yeah, I wouldn't have looked up and like <laughs> thought like, oh, I got to worry about that tree if I pitch my tent here. Um, but yeah, so this tree falls and we felt a sense of shock from the tree. Like, wow, what a huge shift. You know, you, like I've heard trees called the standing people in some tribes. Think about standing in one place. Like this tree's sense of self, it, it, it's always known the creek. It's never been anywhere that wasn't right, like two feet away from the creek. For all these countless years, the changes it's witnessed and experienced. And now the shock. That now suddenly it's in a whole different position, different perspective. And we both, on our own at different times, thought maybe the tree was feeling a sense of guilt Mm -hmm. because it took down a few other trees, you know, in a really brutal, violent way. I mean, they were snapped like twigs. These were big, mature trees. And um, we know trees have some sense of empathy, maybe not the way we feel it, but it's been shown that trees will send signals to other trees when their leaves are being devoured by caterpillars mm. to let the trees know, to warn trees, to change the, the, the chemicals in their leaves to combat the caterpillars, even though that specific individual tree has already been had the death sentence. Mm. So I thought that was interesting that we both felt a sense of guilt. So we were just trying to reassure the tree and move to help it transition from a period of maybe mourning and us, you know, we're kind of feeling yeah. some sad thoughts around this tree to a rejoicing of this new life. And this is part of what got us talking about death is uh, where is that line? You know, like death wasn't just the end because this tree, as we saw, there were new ants crawling on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, the forest wasn't just like discarding it, like, Oh, it's done. It's balled up. You know, let's just crunch it up and throw it in the trash. Mm-hmm. It moves into another kind of life. A whole different set of things are about to happen. It's it's like more like a puberty in a way, you know, even though what we call life ended, but maybe the trouble is what we call life. Maybe we can't even see what the hell just happened. We're just perceiving there's been a big change. Yeah. So uh, did you have any other things you want to add to that? Uh, not at the moment. Well, one thing I wanted to make sure we talk about because it's so relevant right now is COVID-19 and the pandemic, um, the self-quarantine. You know, like, as I said in the beginning, death is such a topic that seems so relevant and is so talked about now. You know, the death tolls are are frightening us. The uh, government is... Um, has definitely increased control over populations all over the world. And depending on where you stand on the issue, you might feel they're justified. You might even want more controls. You might even blame the government for not having um, tightened the controls on the people sooner. You might be in the other camp and feel like, I did not sign up for these controls. I don't want the government telling me what to do. I feel like it's my right to go out and risk my health. You know, I don't think the I think the danger is exaggerated. And who are you to tell me it's not? Um, So, yeah, I want to explore that issue a little bit with uh, regarding death. And Teresa, is there anything that you want to kind of get the conversation rolling in that regard? Sure. Why, Gumby? I'm glad you asked. Um, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to tell you how to answer it. Um, (laughs) 
Um, at the very beginning of uh, here in North Carolina, when we were told that, you know, there were people, cases happening and uh, of this COVID-19, Gumby and I were like, all right, what are we going to do? We need to like get the hell out of the city and uh, figure out what our plan is for food. Um, are we still going to dumpster dive as frequently? Do we need to like get back into consumer culture? So we decided like we'd still be dumpster diving, but only go into town twice a week. And so what that meant was some of the foods that we might normally find uh, I was now purchasing. So I go in the store and there's already some people with masks and I had this mask that it's not even a like a N95. It's just a piece of cloth with some uh, elastic for the ears that I got in Nepal. Have you been in Nepal? I have, actually. And uh, there was this woman who was with her granddaughter, probably, I'd imagine, maybe her daughter. And she didn't have a mask on. So this other woman was in the store, kind of in the aisle that we were in, and she had a mask on. She was with her husband, and her husband didn't have a mask on. And this woman started coughing like hell. Just it, it seemed like maybe she might not have needed to be in public at that time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was completely, uh, you know, not unrelated. Maybe she had a cold and she's like, oh, damn it. You know, I still needed to go to the store. So I'll just put a mask on so people don't get scared. But the granddaughter of this other woman, she was just like turning around like, oh, no, I ain't going down this aisle. Mm. Um, but her grandmother... You know, I, I mentioned something to the effect of, uh, you know, it's getting interesting out there. And she said something like, well, I've got my God to protect me and that's all I need. And I thought that was really interesting because here's this woman who, for what the scientists tell us, is in one of the groups, like the the aged, the elderly, where she might be more susceptible to get this and possibly have complications, possibly even die from it. But here she is out in public, no mask, and she's decided that her faith is all she needs. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to open it up to you. You can take it whatever direction you want. (laughs) Well, I know one thing we've been talking about, um, and something that was on the news was churches, you know, like everything got closed down. We're, We're here in, you know, the occupied lands of the Cherokee and the Tuscarora and many other tribes, um, what we call North Carolina here. And But the story is the same um, over much of the world, that things are kind of locked down and only essential, what's considered essential businesses are open. Like the ABC store. Like the ABC store. <laughs> and I get the argument for that because I've heard the argument for the ABC store. I thought that was really bizarre at first, but they were like, you know, people might go into detox. There are alcoholics that are chemically dependent on the alcohol, and we don't need that big flood of more people in the hospital, hmm. which is kind of one of the big arguments in general, to keep the flood out of the hospital. That's why the argument is made that it's not completely in your court to decide to make this decision, because if you get sick, you're going to go to the hospital. Fair enough. I think a lot of people will. And so that is a concern. If you want the service, they're trying to budget not getting overwhelmed. Now, One of the places this got interesting to me is when some of the churches said, we believe that our fellowship is essential, and we believe that our God will protect us, like the old woman you described. Mm -hmm. And the government stepped in, you know, and when we say the government stepped in, let's keep in mind exactly what that means. People with guns showed up. Uh, The threat of violence or to be locked up in a cage instated itself, asserted itself, let's say. Um, And they said, this is not essential. 
that's at one of, point, one of the points where I started having a, a problem with this. I am not Christian. I am so freaking anti-Christian. I mean, I talk shit about Christians probably more than any other group. I think it's a hugely destructive religion. But I do, as an anarchist, believe that you shouldn't be told what to do. And if somebody feels like their faith, their fellowship is essential, I think that should be allowed. Um, we start getting into really dangerous territory, I think, when we start telling people what's essential, what isn't. You know, I mean, let's keep in mind the things we're taught are essential every day, are frivolous stuff, th- things that keep us dependent, things that keep us living a way of life that harms the planet directly. These are what we consider essential. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting, that relationship with death that some of the people of faith are having. You know, they believe they will be protected. And think of what we might have just robbed from those people by yeah. making them do what someone else with a whole different set of values decided was the one right way to live. Um, Somebody, this church, maybe nobody would have gotten sick. Maybe that would have been like, it would have changed their life. Like, oh my God, we did get taken care of. Maybe it would have (laughs) changed the lives of everybody around them. Yeah. Or maybe the virus might have spread through, started killing people. And again, the people in that church might have asked some questions they've never asked before and taken a whole different path. But by the state stepping in and the big government and big brother, supposedly for our own good, it's always for our own good, isn't it? Mm. We robbed them of that, that choice. And I feel like that's the thing that I feel the most moved to protect is somebody's ability to have those profound life experiences. What are we here for? Um, You know, what are we trying to be protected from? To preserve our lives? Guess what? We're all gonna die. (laughs) That was the end of the game from the moment you took your first breath. You're going to die. To protect you from death is ridiculous. We're all going to die. So to me, the conversation is all about the quality of life. Um, I feel like I'm kind of getting sidetracked here. So let me bring that back to some other things I wanted to talk about with the pandemic. For one thing, I think most people, if not everybody listening to our podcast, people that listen to Derek Jensen's podcast, people that listen to Deep Green Resistance's podcast, The Green Flame, um, people of that sort, one thing that we can basically agree on, most of us, is that civilization needs to be stopped. We've been talking about doing it violently. We've been talking about trying to uh, vote, you know, some people have. We've been talking about protesting. We've been talking about boycotting. But in one form or another, we're all talking about stopping civilization from murdering the planet. Whether you're in the Greta Thunberg camp, whether you're in Michael Moore's camp, Derek Jensen's camp, hell, our little hobo camp, (laughs) we call it the jungle. But we're all talking about basically the same thing. So finally, something is happening that is stopping civilization. Um, As has been pointed out by many people at this point, this COVID-19 has done more to halt us than the entire environmental movement since the (laughs) 1960s. Skies are clearing. We've Many of us have seen the photos of like cities that just um, days before the pandemic were covered in smog. Now they're clear. We're seeing, seeing evidence of like elk moving into roads they've never been and just laying down on the road because nobody's driving on them anymore. Um, Teresa and I have had even experiences right here where we live where we hear a barred owl from a parking lot, a place we've never heard a barred owl before. We're seeing chipmunks in places we've never seen before. And spring feels really long and full right now, you know, and, and other people around here and we're out in the country, you know, we're not talking about smog lifting. We're just talking about subtle differences in the air quality. People are noticing this. 
Um, people are getting bored with their technology, you know, like even as the government is pushing us towards more technology to connect so we're not physically in contact, we can see evidence all over the place of people getting bored with that. They're not sitting on their fat asses anymore at home. We see people walking in the park everywhere, which is kind of a pain in the ass for us because we used to have the parks to ourselves, (laughs) but I've got to applaud the change in lifestyle that's happening. So to me, we got to question this whole death. Why fight the virus? The virus is doing something tremendously good. And if it's bringing something that was already on the way, you were going to die. If the threat is that you might die a little bit sooner, my God, if you, if we can give our lives to something like that, you're never going to have an opportunity to give your life to something better. So that's one of my philosophies. Personally, I don't like wearing the mask. I've worn the mask once since it started because I had to to go in the grocery store. I thought I did, and then I saw other people not wearing it. I'm like, what the hell did I, you know? I want to take my chances. I have more faith in this virus, the wisdom of the earth sending this virus, if it decides to take me out or not, than I do the politicians and scientists that are telling me what to do to put everything on lockdown. Because they're not protecting us as individuals. They never have. They're protecting the system. They want to protect the individuals in the system because we make it run. Hmm. We make it work. They need us. Um, Personally, I applaud COVID-19. And that leads me to another thing. I don't applaud it out of a love of death. I applaud it because I love life. I have compassion. I have people around me that I don't want to see get sick. I don't want to get sick. Teresa and I are trying to like, when we go out, Teresa wears a mask. Um, You know, we're trying to stay out in the country. We're trying to take measures, you know, not just begging for death. So I think you can be compassionate to people, help them. If there's somebody that doesn't want to go out in public, hell, offer, if you're going out in public, to go do some grocery shopping for them. You know, I got into a debate with somebody on Facebook that is saying, like, was really talking badly about people who want to go out in public and everything. And I said, I will help you stay at home. But if you are that worried about your safety, I think the burden of your safety does fall on you. Right. It's not your job to tell other people what to do because you have become afraid of the world and because you have chosen to view the virus as a bad thing to protect us. I've spent my whole life waiting for something to stop us, and this virus has come the closest of anything that has happened during my life. And for me to turn around and suddenly treat the virus like it's this big evil bad guy that now we need to all rally together and protect ourselves from, that's just not making any sense to me. Um, And again, I'm not telling anybody else what to do because I respect your right to make your own decisions. If you want to stay home and wear a mask and everything, I don't think you're stupid for that. Totally valid. But don't tell me what to do. You want to jump in there with any of that, Teresa? Um, I had... uh... I feel like I'm, I'm talking a lot, so if you don't have anything, you don't have to. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Um, I had thought about what if people kind of had a death wish or like a suicide, suicidal thought or something, and they went out in public without a mask. Like, is that <laughs> – I don't know. Like, I was just thinking about um, the government and, and all of these laws that they're implementing – you know, for wearing masks or whatever, like if you don't wear a mask, is that, um, they're not really punishing that, but is it like, would it be considered so seriously as like a, as a suicide attempt? Yeah, I would say that that's totally valid. If you were in fact suicidal, um, that's something that I was thinking we might talk about a little bit during this podcast too. But, uh, I'm not even thinking, I don't think that would be 
many people who are going out there trying to die. I mean, if you're suicidal, what a what a shitty way to try to do it, to just walk around and see if the virus is going to get you. Um, but, you know, I think there's a whole group of people that are just being put on, into one camp. You know, the, the Trump supporters, the, the people that are just like stupid. You're stupid if you're not doing what the government tells you. I mean, right there, that sentence alone, like dissect that for a minute. You're stupid if you're not doing what the government tells you. That should make you like send a chill up your spine when you hear that. <laughs> but there's a lot of different philosophies and different ways of looking at this. Like uh, my own philosophy, I don't feel like is represented at all. I don't hear anybody on NPR talking about that. You know, like it's just t- like a given that the virus must be a bad thing. To me, um, viruses and death have always shaped the creatures of this planet um, and made us stronger in a bigger picture. Always. You know, like, viruses show up when a population has stepped out of line or become imbalanced in some way. And the end result over a long span of time almost always strengthens us, strengthens diversity. Um, I have faith in that. I have faith that if a virus is now... um, upon the earth and it's threatening our civilization, there's a reason for that. And even though I take precautions, I don't, you know, it's not an enemy to me. Um, And again, I guess my final thought on that is consider what we're protecting. When you're wearing that mask, when you're allowing all these regulations, these controls to be put in place, this is all for protection. What are we protecting? Yeah. You know, all this talk about these grand causes, giving your life to like, I hear people talk about blowing up communications towers and, and, you know, like blowing up a dam. I wake up every morning and I wonder whether I should blow up a dam. We're talking about self-sacrifice because you know damn well if you pull that off, the reason why you haven't done it yet is in all likelihood you're on your way to getting shot by the authorities or having your freedom taken away. So now that something is effectively not just blowing up a dam, but stopping things all over the world. I want to give my support to that. I want to, to lend my life to that. And when I look at the good that's already happening in the earth, I feel like the reason why we don't understand death in this culture, you know, we're splitting the ap- atom, we're sending things into space, and yet death is still completely mysterious. You can still walk down the street and find like, Five different views of like what's going to happen when you die. This person thinks you're going to heaven. This person thinks you're getting reincarnated. This person thinks you turn into a ghost. We have no idea what death is. And I think that's because we have no idea what life is. Yeah. This is life. This virus. This, you know, the reason why we're scared is because we've been taught to, to really think of ourselves as so small and powerless. You're just this shrimpy little human that doesn't know how to live on the world anymore. You need the government. And uh, that's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, more and more, it's true. You know, like what happens when the government shuts down? We don't know. But we're so much bigger than that. You know, the trees are are, are your lungs. The winds are your breath. The waters are your blood. Um, The plants are the flesh on your bones. You know, you are bigger. You are part of this planet. And if you're scared of death, you've been dying your entire life. Mm. You used to be a baby. That baby's dead and gone. That baby had to make way for the toddler. That toddler had his own set of thoughts and beliefs, the way he saw the world, or she. That toddler had to die to make way for the child. Death is life. I think this distinction we make is a lie that's been pumped into us and keeps us afraid. Um, The title of this episode is Death Cult. And I see two 
meanings of that. Um, well, let me, I've been talking a lot, Teresa. Let me pass the ball over to you before I completely leave COVID-19. Um, so you can answer this one of two ways, Teresa. Um, you can either um, speak on COVID-19 and take that in any direction you want to. Or, I'm about to sneeze. Or you can sneeze and spread <laughs> snot all over our iPad and everything, which would be really nasty. Or um, talk about death cult. I know we've talked a little bit about this. Talk about what that means to you. Any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I was I was liking what you were saying about, like, we don't know what life is anymore. And uh, I had been thinking about what we've done with the time that we're here experiencing Earth and each other and, and relation and communication, connection. And we've kind of turned it into this whole, like, getting up before the sun rises and not getting home until after the sun sets sometime and just worrying about bills and worrying about things that you could get that'll make you happy. And we're just letting all of this experience pass us by. We're, we're experiencing something else, but is that life or is that kind of dead that way of living is it just full of just kind of not life um you are not of life you are not of life we heard a homeless person last winter when we were in the van we talked about this and anything goes um and that's what he was saying like he's walking around the city just like preaching uh you are not of life and yeah to me like i don't know what he meant by it of course but that makes me think of what we're talking about right now this death cult our culture um I'm sorry to jump in there. Go ahead and finish your thought. No, I was, I was just thinking, too, about um, this acquaintance that we both have. And uh, she was talking about not really knowing uh, where she was going to end up living. She had lived in a vehicle before, and she said she didn't want to do that because she didn't want to spend all of her time uh, searching for a safe place to, to occupy, to, to sleep in, um, wondering, you know, what to do about food, about bathing, et cetera. It seemed like a lot of survival time during the day. And she didn't want to just survive. She didn't want to just experience just those basic things. But I think as a human on this planet, I wonder if those activities really are where life happens and what we are calling life. It's like we've choked the life out of life. Yeah, Teresa and I were talking a little bit about this this morning, and when she brought that up, it reminded me of uh, some of these Zen stories I hear. Like there's the carry water, chop wood, you know, there's the basic story. I'm going to bastardize this, but like, you know, a monk is about to achieve enlightenment and he meets a master that's already achieved it and asks him what enlightenment is. And this master is carrying a big bundle of wood down the mountain and he drops the bundle. He just lets everything go. That's enlightenment, letting it all go. And then the, the student asks, well, what do you do after you get enlightened? And the master picks up the bundle and keeps walking down the trail. And that that idea is told in so many ways in the Zen tradition. Um, and to me, that's, that reminds me what you're talking about. Where is life? Why do we always think life is like what happens after this chore? That you don't want to just like, you know... To me, life... Well, it's a slippery word, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if we're talking, if you're thinking about it, you have what we're calling life by a strictly cold clinical scientific uh, way of looking at it. 
but those chores, you know, like Teresa spends a lot of her day uh, working in her garden now, and I spend a lot of my day, uh, you know, reading, laying in hammocks, <laughs> stuff like that. To me, if you don't find life in what you're doing, how are you ever going to find it? You know, it's like chopping wood and carrying water. That's life. Um, I think of our dog Sherlock as a Zen master a lot of times mm. because he will just throw himself into any old body of water, not really caring what's underneath. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some might call that foolish, but he lives life. He bounds through fields and forests and, and picks up ticks and everything else. He's gotten bitten by a copperhead snake. He just keeps living. He don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> he just keeps on living. And I think, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode about how I, I'm still afraid, like at the edge of a lake, like I'll stick my foot in and just make sure that I'm not going to sink down into the soupy mud or there's not like snakes around that are going to bite me or something. I mean, I admit that or even poison ivy, you know, like I'm afraid I'm going to get poison ivy. Sherlock don't care. I mean, but when you're afraid of poison ivy, you're not afraid of death. You're afraid of discomfort, right? Well, that's true. That's true. But I guess the um, the thing I was talking about with Sherlock is he just goes. He just lives, and even in his sleep, like when he sleeps, he sleeps. Mm -hmm. When he's laying in the sun, he is fully aware and like present of just laying in the sun and enjoying it. Yeah, and I would extend that to pretty much everything, like even other humans outside of our culture. You see that same basic abandonment to life. I think, God, I got so many thoughts here. Let me try to organize them real quick. So I used to work at this nature education place, mm -hmm. and um, they had captive animals all over the freaking place. And the way they justify it, they call them educational animals. I fucking hated that because this animal would be like, damaged in some way. Maybe it had a broken wing. So whatever they would use to justify that this animal cannot survive in the wilderness anymore. They would stick it in a cage and then people would come by and, you know, maybe they'd take a hawk out with a strap and show everybody, ooh, ah, look at the hawk. Or the kids would look in the cage at the, the animal. I hated um, having these caged animals. I would always ask the kids when they were marveling at this barred owl in a cage, how do you think it feels? And the kids would always know. The kids would always answer like, oh, it looks lonely, depressed. Of course it does. Now, the thinking behind that was this animal did not understand death and life. Because if you believe the animal was wise enough to understand death and life, you would respect its decision. Mm. Instead, because it's so ignorant for its own good, for its own life, you would lock it. You would put it in this cage to protect it. Mm. I never bought that. I think everything basically outside of our culture has a better grasp and understanding of life and death than we do. And this applies to Sherlock as well. I think those animals see a bigger picture. They don't hold on to their individual lives so um, desperately. They understand that they're part of something bigger. And if it's your time to go, if your your wing has been injured and something can catch you, that's not the end of your life. Life does not end. It changes. Then you become part of the fox that ate you. You become part of the ground of what the fox leaves behind. You become part of the wind that carries your feathers. Um I think there's a deeper understanding, and that's why the animals don't choose to stay in those cages. That's why they have to be put in there against their will. So, yeah. Does that jive with what you're talking about with Sherlock at all? Uh, yeah. And I was also going to just kind of ask you a question. Mm -hmm. You can take it any direction that you want. Oh, I thank you. Um, 
are we the culture of life or death? I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> that's a leaded, leading question, counselor. Mm. Um, but in my opinion, and um, I feel like I've got a lot of evidence of this, we are a death culture. But the perversity of that, you know, going back to that death cult, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, our culture is a cult of death. But here's the, the, the slipperiness of it. We pretend like we are a culture of life. In grasping life, in, in squeezing it and strangling it into perverse forms, we become a culture of death. Um, when you think about, like, what does the Bible say? Go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. You know, and the, the Bible is one of our oldest records of our culture, you know, going back way back. That was one of the first things that we were told to do. Have a lot of kids. Be fruitful. Multiply. This was a good thing. It was also a weapon. Because if you go up against another tribe, you know, one of the bottom lines is who has the most people? Who's the biggest? Like, they, you see that in history with, on this continent, North America. You know, the, uh, the Indians would lament, wow, there's just endless white faces. It doesn't do any good to fight because there's more and more pouring in. People. Life. More and more people. Living people. Yet when you treat life like that, unchecked, it, it takes on this different quality. It's not a celebration of life. I believe a, a real celebration of life doesn't fight death. Death has a part of it. It doesn't worry for the morrow. You know, there right away, you worry for the morrow, you're clutching at life instead of celebrating it. It's a whole bad mindset. When you start clutching at life, it's a slippery thing. It gets further and further away from you. The more you clutch it, the more you're already dead. I look around at our culture and I see a whole lot of people that are already dead. I mean, the zombie apocalypse is here. The walking dead are already out there. <laughs> um, so yeah, this this culture of, of death. And do you have anything, like any observations or anything, any thoughts you want to share about our culture? Like, um, well, we had mentioned before, like, I think in our animist... Um episode <laughs> stop throwing things at me chunk and spears um that we have to look at everything as dead otherwise we wouldn't be able to do the things oh yeah that we do yeah i forgot about that side of it thank you for bringing that up yeah i think that was also from Derek jensen yeah at least in part <laughs> definitely some of the things he said spurred on those thoughts um but yeah, I feel like that's part of our black magic, a power that our culture has developed and honed over time, is to treat everything like it's dead. Because if you treat everything like it's alive, if it thinks, it speaks, it has things to share, you don't get to live the way we do. We would have never gotten a toehold with this kind of power. And it is a powerful place, but it's a dark power. It's a power that leads us into death. We, have, uh, we are a culture of death. And... One of the condemnations that we, we say about our enemies is they have no regard for life. These terrorists, they don't they have no respect for life. They don't care if they kill people. <laughs> At the same time, the terrorists maybe killed 10 people with a bomb, and we're sending soldiers over killing thousands and thousands of people. It's just propaganda. It's complete bullshit, <laughs> you know, that we're, we're singling out somebody that's actually fighting our culture, who's spreading death like wildfire. But if they fight our culture, they have no regard for life. So... That's part of what I mean by a death cult and the objectification you're talking about, Teresa, mm-hmm. that you have power over something like, hell, let me just bring it into something that like we all agree is a living, thinking being. 
the difference in gender. I'm a man. I go up to a woman. If I treat her like a thinking, equal, living being, there's an etiquette. I have to get to know her. I have to learn to, I have to find a connection with her. We have to find some reciprocity, something that is mutually beneficial um, to have a relationship. Um, there has to be some sort of courtship ritual. Now, if I completely objectify her, I have a new power. I can just throw her down. I can I can rape her. I can kill her if she bothers me. I murder her because I can just, you know, go find another woman and do the same thing. But even though it is, in a strictly objective sense, more powerful, it's also a dark power because as soon as I do that, I'm already moving closer to death. Think about what that does to somebody. That deeper relationship that I could have had by forming a relationship with another living being, that's gone. I'm losing that ability quickly. Like, Meaning yourself. Yeah. I mean, like, after doing that, that's basically, like, all you can do. I, I would imagine, as somebody who hasn't done this, that it's got to be mighty hard to pull back from that. Yeah. I think that's what sometimes soldiers are going through when they go and they, you know, kill, kill, murder people. And then they come back and they're like, how the fuck am I supposed to fit into this arbitrary set of values? Like, all of a sudden, like, we're a culture that respects life again? I, I you know... So, yeah. Any any final thoughts on our culture being a death cult? Because there's another side to this that I'm going to get into, but I want to make sure that we've said anything we want to in that regard. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got for now. I do want to tell that story of our, uh, pos- or our death. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and tell that? All right. Okay. <laughs> so, Gumby and I were hiking this trail that goes across North Carolina and occasionally we'll find chicken of the woods, mushrooms, uh, occasionally we'll find a little trailside nibble. And so we were approaching this shack that had been taken over by poison ivy vines. And on top of the shack, there were uh, vultures sitting, congregating and that was ominous. I saw, and oh, and I think it had just started to thunder or something. Mm-hmm. And I saw this plant, and I was like, oh, look, it's sweet Sicily. And we'd been munching on sweet Sicily, so we were kind of like, I, I think, starting to take it for granted. Like, oh. Yeah. There's like a little pod on it, and you just take it and eat it. And so I took one, and Gumby took one, and I didn't. Parsley family. Ba-ba-bum. Didn't um, have that burst of delicious like, <laughs> anise like sweet flavor and uh gumby was like i don't think this is sweet sicily and i started to get this feeling i can only speak for myself but uh we we had walked a little bit and i started to get this feeling of kind of lightheaded kind of uh a, not a nervous but kind of like uh-oh. <laughs> and let me interject that one of the things that we were worried about is that this is in the parsley family, which happens to have two members of the deadliest plants on this continent, poison hemlock and water hemlock. So if you make a mistake in this family, um, you could pay dearly. And we both knew that. <laughs> so we um, we just kind of stopped for a bit Um, on this little bridge that went over a little babbling brook, took off our backpacks and just kind of sat there. And I was thinking, I might have just killed both of us. This is so fucking stupid. Like, oh my God. 
that shame, that guilt, that all of those feelings. And I shed a few tears and then I just was like, but you know, I mean, as bad as I feel, I got to let that shit go. Because at this point, if we are dying, like, do I want to just die a, a sniveling mess? Or can I let my eyes fall on this beautiful brook in the, in the forest? Can I let the soothing sounds of the water just lull me? Like, just this peaceful setting. Can I just absorb every bit of that into my being and have a peaceful passing? Because there's no sense in holding on to shame and guilt and all of that as you're dying, you know, when you're dying, obviously we didn't die, but that was a serious experience of, okay, this might be it. How do you, how do you face that? What do you do? What don't you do? Yeah. And I was not blaming Teresa because I, I take responsibility that if Teresa thinks it's something and then I go and eat it, um, you know, it's my responsibility to check. But it was a powerful morning. You know, I remember we stopped at this bridge and we really like we were way off the trail um, away from any kind of civilization. You know, it was like no phones, no phone, no, no anything like, you we're know. Dead. Yeah. And I, I thought, Wow. This could actually be it. And I remember we sat on this little bridge and watched the crayfish in this beautiful little stream. And life slowed down. Life got so vivid. Life got so beautiful. Um, and there was a little bit of fear, but I remember feeling more and more peace as I sat there. Like, wow, I am so glad that I knew, like, death is coming. Death is going to find me one day. It could find me with hardened arteries sitting in a fucking stinking chair in front of a TV watching some <laughs> bullshit that I don't even like. Hooked up to a bunch of monitors in a hospital sterile room with no friends or family or, or life around you. Yeah, it could find me, you know, in any number of places. And one of the things I remember thinking is, thank God it found me out here. Yeah. Like, this is exactly where I'd want to be. But as Teresa said, of course, uh, you know, we're not recording this from the great beyond. Yeah. So we survive. But <laughs> just the thought of thinking you're going to die, you know, and of course, we've all got our own near death experiences. You know, we could go on and on. Um, but that was a powerful moment for me. And it, it really it's a good segue, actually, to what I wanted to talk about with the other side of the death cult. Um, and to introduce that, this other take on that. I think of Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan taught him that your death sits on your left shoulder. He personified death, kind of like a lot of us think of the Grim Reaper. Death is actually an entity of some kind. And your death is always there with you, like breathing down your neck, basically. Don Juan teaches Castaneda that a warrior always remembers death. And he teaches him death is the best guide you have. Whenever you think your whole world's falling apart, things are upside down, things are chaotic as you so often do, turn to your death and ask if this is true. And your death will say, I haven't touched you yet. Nothing is important outside of my touch. The world is infinitely mysterious and full of any possibility right up until that touch. And I remember reading that when I was a teenager. I was so inspired that I thought, man, I want to remember my death like a warrior. I want to be more of a warrior and like use my death as a guide. And uh, the way I decided to, to help myself remember that at the time was to get a tattoo on my left shoulder. 
And I thought, what's a good symbol for death? You know, what's something that'll remind me of the powerful lesson of death? So I got an onk um, that represents eternal life. Because I wanted to remember that even back then, I understood that I was going to continue forever. Even if I strictly think of things scientifically, and anybody listening to our podcast knows what I think of science. Mm -hmm. But even strictly scientifically, all the elements, all the things that compose me came from the stars. I'm already infinitely ancient, and I'm going to become other things. Mm. There's a, a, a part of me that will never die, and that that little part I identify with, it was always going away. It's been changing my whole life, um, even for my name. You know, of course, I wasn't born being called Gumby, but now I'm Gumby. I mean, even the name reflects the changes, you know, that we're constantly changing. But at the same time, no moment will be repeated. You know, that doesn't mean, oh, you're going to be forever, so, you know, just treat things complacently. No moment. Every precious moment is unrepeatable. It will never be the same way again. So I've got Carpe Diem written around the onk to remind me, you know, seize the day. This day will not be repeated. It's precious. Even if you have an infinite number of days, this one only came around once. And to me, I still believe that kind of encapsulates a big part of the lesson that death has to teach me. So Teresa and I were, were kind of pondering one morning about like, what if what if it's all about your last day? What if that's the only day that really matters, that day you're, you're going to die? What if you spent your whole life practicing the last day? In other words, you got up this morning and you're like, this is my last day. This is my last day on earth. I'm going to treat it exactly like my last day on earth. I'm going to fight the things that I think need to be fought. And if I die fighting them, it's my last day on earth. I was on my way out anyway. I'm going to love the things that I I've all that I I want to like just give my undying uninhibited love towards because it's my last day on earth. And imagine a life lived like that. Imagine day after day living that life. What if and this is just kind of a mental exercise. What if that was a type of death cult? People that really truly use death as a guide and what if by seeking death that was the key to life. Because when I think of somebody living like that, that's life. What we're taught to, to call life in our culture, this clinging, this getting wires hooked up to you, taking medications, always being scared, constantly scared of something that you're, you know you're going to lose. That's not life. I mean, only in a strictly scientific sense. So that helped me start considering the bridge. I mean, even more than a bridge, that life and death are the same thing. I don't think there is such a thing as death as we understand it. Death is a misinterpretation of life. I think there is nothing but life. The only thing that dies are the things we cling to, the changes, states of being. It doesn't die, it changes. But because it goes away, we think it died. We call it death and we, we get scared of irrational things. Death is the most certain thing we've ever known, even more than birth. There was no guarantee you were going to be born. But as soon as you draw that first breath, there's a guarantee you're going to die. It's like you say a lot of times that our imperfect language, we can't really describe what we're experiencing. So death has become this word with so many um, like concrete connotations. It, it isn't what we think it is. But our language is sloppy. We can't exactly, we can't really communicate what 
death is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I wrote down um, death as a gateway to the next level. Yeah, and it's not only the communication of death. It, it, when I follow that, that rabbit down the hole, I realize that we think death is the mystery, and we think we know what life is. But like I said in the beginning, I think we don't know what death is because we don't really know what life is. Mm-hmm. You know, to to think that trees are alive, but somehow lesser alive, so we it's okay to cut them down, you know, and that a rock is not alive, even though it's brimming and vibrating with the very same atomic particles that we find in everything. It just, the whole hierarchy starts breaking down when you really, and, and like, a, again, even strictly using science, you know, like let's not get into the woo-woo stuff. And some of the woo-woo stuff I think has more depth in it and truth in it than the science. Mm-hmm. But strictly using the science that we're so arrogant about, the whole hierarchy, the whole logic just starts really losing a lot of weight when you think about it. And isn't that a scary, profound thought? Not only do we not know what death is, we don't know what the fuck life is. Yeah. No wonder we're bumbling around so much. We shouldn't be changing so much and trying to take control of stuff. We're completely ignorant. Um there's so many Indian tales of animals and trees being our teachers. My God, it makes a lot of sense when you start having a better grasp of life and death, why you'd start treating the world that way. They seem to know something we don't, you know, to, to humble yourself and try to learn a piece of that. Yeah, like I was saying with Sherlock, um, our dog, he he doesn't really have, uh, when I say he doesn't have a care in the world, I'm sure he cares about stuff. He cares about sticks. <laughs> lacrosse balls, rocks. Um, he cares about us. Where's back? That's true. What I care and concern myself with on a daily basis isn't really important at all. It's something that I have, like my ego. Like I think I'm so busy. I think I have so many important things to accomplish in my life. I, when I finally die, when I finally transition into the next level, I, I can only wish for myself a clean slate. And what I mean by that is I don't want in my last moments to be concerned with things here. Like I don't want anything left behind. I don't want anything to worry about. I don't want people to worry about anything, any of my stuff, any of my stuff that's not things. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to have that. I want to have kind of, like I said, what Sherlock experiences. I just want to bound through the fields. I want to fly through the clouds. I want to, you know, I want to just cannonball into the lake and not give a damn. (laughs) Because that's, that's what I feel like my next level is going to look like. I don't want to think about, oh, I didn't get a chance to go through those papers. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you really know you're going to die anyway, I mean, you start, to me, kind of treating life almost more like a dream. It takes on a different quality. And what do you do in a dream? You don't try to, like, clutch the dream. You celebrate it. You figure out you can fly in the dream. By God, you fly. And I still struggle with that. I'm not saying I've I've grasped that. I mean, you'd be a Zen master if you had, like, completely embodied that. And we're about to have to, we're about out of time. Um, One thing I want to, before I forget, we were talking about Carlos Castaneda and death being an advisor. One of the other things that Don Juan shares with Castaneda is the one of the the pieces of advice, the wisdom that death gives a warrior is that treat everything like it's your last battle. 
your last act, your last mark. So he talks about the impeccability of a warrior. If I am washing the dishes, I, what if that is my last act on this beautiful earth that has given me so much? Why don't I wash the dishes with everything I've got? The best I know how to wash the dishes. Like it's the most important thing in the world. You see this Again, often in Zen, too, you know, like sweeping the floor with everything you have. Cleaning the toilets. Cleaning the toilets. You know, (laughs) I've heard that job is reserved for the head priest in Zen temples because it's such a humbling and therefore profoundly uh, fruitful thing to to practice. Um, God damn, there's my my, uh, trademark brain fart. Wow, I almost made it without having a brain fart. But yeah, so I was having social anxiety years back really bad. I still have it sometimes, Um, but it was crippling me. I was trying to have a job, and every morning I felt like I'm not going to make it. And what I would tell myself every morning, I'd remind myself of that. And like, what if this is my last act on earth? I've already tried to run. I've let my fear take over, and I've hid from the world. But what if this is my last day on earth? Do I want to die once again running, losing a battle? Or do I want to die fighting a battle, standing up, trying Even if I, like, the worst happens, I puke all over my shoes, I have a heart attack from the sheer fear of being out among people, and I decided I wanted to fight. And that became such an empowering thought. That got me out there. I I think of that as one of the the thoughts that started being a big part of my healing, and that was part of using death as a guide. Um, You know, what if this is your last mark on the earth? Do you want to spend it as a coward? Do you want to spend it carelessly or do you want to fucking give it everything you've got and that really helped me at a time that I desperately needed some help um and yeah I've got one last thought but it's a short one so Teresa do you have any last things you want to yeah I'll try to make this quick um at one point in time I was a white girl teaching yoga you're not a white girl anymore no actually I'm not I uh transitioned what a thing to find out about your girlfriend (laughs) so um Part of every class that I would have would be the Shavasana uh, corpse pose, where at least what I understood of it, it was practicing for death. You're, you're letting go of this body and of your mind. And I just really thought that that was beautiful, mm-hmm. that even though we don't, we don't know what death will be like, that, that word that we don't even, we don't understand it, we don't know why we call it death. We don't even know what it is, but to be able to let go, to have that delicious nearby freedom of death, as Whitman. Walt Whitman said in our song, I sing the open road uh, <laughs> podcast. But yeah, I, I really appreciated that um, Shavasana, the corpse pose. And I even, I was thinking, cause a lot of people that were coming to my class were, um, were elderly that, you know, maybe I should look into, um, at the time, like the, this death doula thing and see like, what if I spent more time around the aged? What if I really like dove into that and, um, just was there with them, just listened. And that was something else that was a part of that tree ceremony where we were celebrating its life was any way we wanted, any way we felt at the moment to try and listen Mm -hmm. to the tree who had, just now transitioned we don't know what to call it so we will say it died but it hasn't really and again this isn't about being a pretentious person that like says you know how to speak to trees i think the effort is the important part 
because the effort conveys a compassion and already the connection is starting to, to be open through the effort. And I'll say this too, I obviously don't know what it's like to experience the death, <laughs> but I feel like each night when we go to sleep um, and at certain times when I've like passed out, like I've blacked out, passed out, I feel like I've touched a little bit of that. And so, um, if I can, and this is, this is always a a practice, like if I can, I try to remember that so that when I am dreaming or if I am passing out or feeling dizzy or something, I can try to explore that. Um, because I think that is, those are tiny death experiences, small deaths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And my little quick thing to take us out, um, you know, I've somebody got angry me angry with me on Facebook not long ago. Actually, at the beginning of this uh, quarantine, and said, "Well, you're probably strong and healthy. I'm at, at the at risk group. Um, I've had my gallbladder taken out, and like they had to cut me open like a fish because um, it just got so swollen, and I wouldn't go to the hospital. And they also found like um, you know growths on my liver, so they cut off a big chunk of my liver. Um, I have all kinds of like I don't go to the doctor. I just kind of." I'm trying to live a life where when death comes, I want to meet it gracefully. And I'm not trying to shame anybody that goes to a doctor or takes medicine. This is just my choice. And I could change that. You know, there have been times when I do take medication and I did go to a doctor to get the gallbladder taken out. But I don't look at myself like the strong person that's going to survive. One thing I've learned about wilderness survival is it's an odds game. There's no guarantees. Um, Rambo might have a tree fall on him, whereas the lawyer from New York is humble enough where he figures things out and adapts. Um, So that's not what this is about when we talk about COVID-19, not for me. Um, I feel like, you know, if I get, if I get COVID-19, I very well could die as much as anybody else. I just invite everybody who's listening, hopefully we've given you some thoughts to think about with death, uh, maybe some things you, you liked and you thought about yourself and you agree with, other things that you just think like, oh man, those assholes, like, and either way, you know, go ahead and tell us. We love hearing input. But consider what's happening right now in the world. We're all busy fearing death and life is exploding. Yeah. So, I see it. We're out in the country. We see it everywhere. I see pictures of other places in the world. Life is exploding, I think, faster than I see the potential. I am so freaking optimistic right now. I think if we would just stop, if something stops us like this virus, the earth has the potential to heal so goddamn fast. And I would invite you to figure out what it means to protect yourself. What are you protecting? It's time to pick a side. Are you on the side of a culture that miscalls death life? Or do you want to be on the side of life itself? Wild, beautiful, rapid, flowing, blowing, roaring, flying life. Untamable. Untamable. Wildness. Because if you think in those terms... That reframing really can change the way you look at stuff. And I don't know. I just want to throw that thought out there. You know, let's not forget for those of us who have been waiting, who have been feeling sorrowful about what's happening to the, the, the earth, you know, the, the constant murders of all the human and non-human uh, cultures, peoples outside of our culture. 
that finally something is happening. And let's not forget that bigger picture now, you know, because I see a lot of that happening where now that there's some stress, there's an actual threat that feels different than what we've become accustomed to. There's a temptation to like go right back into the selfish mindset. And I even feel it, you know, I have to remind myself and work through this because I miss certain things, you know, can't go to the movies. I used to like to catch a matinee now and then and other things we used to do. But there's something really beautiful happening right now, and we can be on the side of that as well. So, anyway, that was no more thoughts, Teresa? On... No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, for our writer, our listener write-in, um, I wanted to share a message from Bill in Switzerland. He's Hello. one of our, our favorite uh, people that writes in because <laughs> he always writes such long and thorough uh, letters that we really appreciate um, how much he really is thinking about what he's uh, sharing with us. And he writes, Hello, my brother and sister from a different mother. I just wanted to send you a quick message telling you that I'm still here listening to you every week and I still think you are doing a great job with your content. Your coverage of U.S. presidents was great. I, for one, learned a lot from all your hard work and research. Thank you. Your time and energy was not wasted. Also, thank you for all the books and movies and music. Bony Fingers is a great song (laughs) that you turned me on to. I'm still going through your recommended list of reading, and I'm loving it. I must say that one of my favorite episodes so far was your interview with Teresa. I have listened to you guys talk for well over 100 hours. Sorry about that, Bill. (laughs) And as dysfunctional as it may seem, I feel like I know both of you. I think that 100 hours was just in our last presidential podcast. Yeah, sorry about that. Learning a little bit more about Teresa was really nice. You are some of the very few people I've met, met in little uh, quotey, quotes, that share the same view of the world. Sometimes it can be lonely being a middle-aged, misanthropic, animist freak. So it's nice to know that I'm not alone. Now you need to interview Gumby. Oh, yeah. I was excited to listen to your Fuck You podcast. (laughs) I was hoping that you would offend me in some way so I could write you with some form of disagreement, but alas, you did not. (laughs) I even agreed with your comment about how annoying vegans are. I've been a vegan since 1987 and have managed animal rights and vegan nonprofits for over 20 years as a career. I can honestly say that the best arguments against veganism are vegans. <laughs> they are the most annoying, selfish, self-righteous people I have ever met. Even in Switzerland, they are fucking annoying. <laughs> they care more about being labeled as vegans than ending the life-degrading agribusinesses that they propose to be so much against. I avoid them like the coronavirus. <laughs> so fuck you, vegans. On that note, fuck you, modern environmentalists. Back in the 80s, I spent much of my time with Earth Firsters. Our modus operandi included tree spiking, construction equipment destruction, tree sitting, road blocking, and setting fire to well-selected buildings and structures. Our heroes were Dave Foreman, Cactus Ed, Rod Coronado, Julia Hill, and other Earth warriors. Today, our greatest environmentalist is Greta Thunberg, a young lady selected by the powers that be to sit in on various high-profile political and business meetings to show how much the rich care for our planet. Mm. I won't say fuck you, Greta, because I know she is an innocent pawn in this fucked-up game, but I will say fuck you to those who manipulate us into believing that submission and compromise is the solution. Mm. It is not. Again, thank you for all your time and energy sending truth out into the world. You're offering a great service. Wow. Bill, you said so, 
so much in that message. And it was right on time, too, because I was I think I had just said, like, I wonder what Bill's doing. And then you, like, wrote this message. And, yeah, I do need to interview Gumby. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Um, Greta, yeah, that's uh, Regretta. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I wouldn't say fuck you to Greta either. I feel like she's trying. But, uh, you know, there's this new documentary. Well, I don't know how new it is now. But Planet of the Humans that Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs put out. Um, And we really liked it. There's a lot of criticism of it. But it kind of attacks the stance that Greta Thunberg is – representing with the green energy and everything. Mm-hmm. So I still applaud Greta. Um, but I do, I would love for Greta to come around more and maybe like, I don't know, get away from that green energy. But, you know, yeah. I find myself liking Greta, even though I don't agree with a lot of what she does. And it's funny that you thanked us for the presidential podcast. We think they're so bad that we laugh at them. Oh my God. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to dismiss them completely. We learned a lot. And when I, I listened to them myself, there's uh, stuff that I'm, I'm glad we did, but yeah, we, we learned a lot from making them, including things that we don't want to do, <laughs> like kill ourselves with research and, you know, like uh, go on for four hours. Yeah. I mean, so, but yeah, we're actually, glad we did it and finished it. That's actually um, a hope for this this new season is kind of like a dying away of the old format in, in a sense. And uh, I don't know, like the birth of a new dawn of podcast. Yeah. And fuck you, Bill. We'll try to, uh, <laughs> we'll try to offend you next time. So, um, uh, we love you, Bill. <laughs> and hope you're safe. Hope everybody out there is safe. And, uh, you know, consider what we mean by safe in this whole conversation of death and, and the age of the virus. Mm-hmm. You look like you had something to say. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Recommended reading and movies documentaries are two tabs on our website. You can just access them from the first page, Escaping Society, all one word, dot Weebly, W-E-E. Oh, where are you going to do this? Oh, you can go ahead. Uh, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com, Escaping Society dot Weebly dot com. Yeah, Escaping Society is lowercase, one word. I, I found that if I try to look it up and have it as two words, it'll sometimes take me to a place that's not our website. Look for the flaming rocking chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, check those out. I haven't finished linking all of the movies and documentaries. Um, and we, we add books and, and other things um, as they come to our attention and we get to them. And yeah, but you can also uh, send us a message just like Bill did on our website right there on the front page or through uh, Anchor. Or Facebook. We've got a Facebook page, Escaping Society. Yeah, and if you have any uh, stories of how death has affected you, um, we'd love to hear those. If you are dead, in fact. Yeah, especially <laughs> if you're dead. I've been waiting for somebody to come back. Houdini was supposed to do that, huh. come back and tell his wife. As far as I know, he didn't. But, uh, yeah, carpe diem, bitches, and uh, <laughs> seize the day. Because tomorrow you may die, and if not then, you're going to die. Hmm. Bye.
So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.